Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week on politics, we've got Michael Packey, national political editor for Macquarie Media, who is on the ground in Buenos Aires, Argentina, waiting for Scott Morrison to show up for the G20 summit. And he tells me the government is on death row. Chris Weston, head of research at Pepperstone, runs us through how the markets have been performing and in particular, all the action from last night, which was huge. And industry professor Warren Hogan from the Dean's Unit at UTS updates us on the economy. And finally, Steve Sammartino, author and futurist, shares his thoughts on whether Bitcoin is on the way in or out, blockchain in particular, and how online retail is faring this Christmas, and in particular after Black Friday sales last week. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now for the week in politics, let's hear from Michael Packey, National Political Editor for Macquarie Media. And he's in Buenos Aires at the moment for the G20, waiting for Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, to show up in the next few days. Michael, there you are in Buenos Aires waiting for Scott Morrison to show up. Do you think that he'll be glad to get out of town or wishing he was back home sorting things out? Uh Look, I don't think that Scott Morrison wants to be here in Argentina at this point in time. I think he's only coming because uh, he has to be here. He's the Prime Minister. The G20 is a summit of world leaders. Australia is part of uh, uh, the G20. But if you ask me, I'd say that Scott Morrison would rather be dealing with business back in Australia rather than be here in Argentina literally uh, for what for probably 30 hours, uh, maybe a little more. Uh, my understanding is uh, he'll be in Parliament on Thursday and uh, he's going to be leaving Argentina on Saturday afternoon. That's Argentina local time so he can be back in Australia for Parliament on Monday. He clearly doesn't want to miss Parliament on uh, Monday or any uh, days of Parliament knowing that the uh, Parliament now for him is uh, so precarious every uh, vote on the floor of Parliament now counts and uh, I think he just would rather be in Australia and would have rather not have had to do this trip uh, at all. What do you think he'd be doing if he stayed home? What, I mean, what is he doing at the moment, given what's been going on, which has been a huge... Well, well obviously today, Thursday, he's going to be focusing on um, on Parliament on uh, and making sure that uh, most of his uh, MPs actually uh, don't miss any votes. I think he'll be uh, really riding that uh, as well as the uh, whip. I think over the over the weekend, what he probably would have done if he didn't have to be here in Argentina, he could have probably been uh, contacting colleagues and trying to massage colleagues, uh, given uh, many people in the party seem to be worried about uh, the party's uh, direction and what's happening, especially after the rout uh, in Victoria uh, last weekend. Uh, so that's obviously concerned uh, many people at a federal level uh, as well. So that's probably what he could have been doing if he was on the ground in Australia rather than be distracted by the G20 summit where he obviously needs to attend uh, various meetings. Uh, he may get a couple of one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with world leaders already. We know that uh, uh, Donald Trump 
Trump won't be meeting with him, and we don't and we don't know if the Chinese President Xi Jinping will be meeting with uh, uh, Scott Morrison either. But he may have meetings with other world leaders on the sidelines um, of uh, the G20. But I think that if he was in Australia, he could probably be taking a lot more control over what's going on uh, within the Liberal Party and ensure that the last week uh, of uh, Parliament, the last sitting week of Parliament, maybe is more manageable than what this last week has been following the defection of uh, Julia Banks from the Liberal Party to sit on the crossbench as an independent. Yes, well, that uh, defection of Julia Banks kind of derailed his big announcement of a surplus. He announced that the budget would be on April the 2nd and there'll be a surplus. Mm. And then, blow me down, Julia Banks buggers off. So, Well, and it uh, happened at the same time, which is the unbelievable thing. As he was announcing that the budget would be back in surplus in April, you had Julia Banks uh, in the parliament. So he was outside in the parliamentary courtyard and Julia Banks was in parliament basically saying, oh, you know what? I'm quitting. <laughs> and like he was completely blindsided by the whole entire thing. So where do they stand now? What do you think the surplus is going to do? And is that going to pull them out of the fire? Oh, look, I don't think so. I think it's all a bit too late now. I think we're watching the government in its death throes, if you ask me. Um, I think the fact that uh, the budget will be in surplus, look, it's a good thing that uh, the budget will be in surplus. Obviously, it'll be a wafer-thin surplus, um, I'm assuming. Um, I think previously we've heard that the surplus might be, what, $2 billion or something like that. So it'll be a very uh, small surplus, which is good that the budget is in surplus. Um, but I don't think that uh, the voters are actually going to reward uh, the coalition for that. Um, the way I see it when it comes to budgets and the economy and surplus, I think that most voters think, think that that is the general job of a government to ensure that, that they're managing a budget, to keep a budget uh, uh, in the black rather than in the red. Um, and I think that managing the economy carefully, uh, most uh, voters would say, well, that's your job, isn't it? Um, so why should we be rewarding you uh, for that? I think the, the overall dysfunction uh, in the party is are definitely going to uh, see that the coalition is probably fairly substantially punished at uh, the uh, federal election. Notionally, they already are, are in opposition. They've only got 73 uh, votes on the floor of parliament and they really do need uh, some of those independents to back them in um, on some votes or otherwise they're in real trouble. And uh, that's a problem. And uh, the way things are looking, uh, the government is going to lose seats in Victoria. They're going to lose seats in Western Australia. They're likely to lose seats also in Queensland. So you can only think that uh, the, the government is heading for a drubbing and it's basically in its death throes between now and the election next year. In fact, the Herald Sun had a poll this morning, I don't know if you saw it, that yeah. suggested that Kelly O'Dwyer is going to lose Higgins. Kelly O'Dwyer. Good yep. heavens. And isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It is actually amazing that uh, these sort of seats like uh, Higgins, which are, you know, a dyed-in-the-walled liberal seats, are now at the risk of being lost uh, to Labor. And uh, uh, according to uh, the poll, the suggestion seems to be that uh, in the state election, uh, so there was swings uh, in some areas uh, where that seat uh, of Higgins takes place that moved towards Labor. And they're saying now at a federal level, well, the seat is likely to uh, be gone altogether. And when you look at what's happening in places like Indi in Victoria as well, uh, Kathy McGowan, independent, has been uh, successfully holding on to that seat now for a couple of terms, which was previously held by uh, the Liberals. Wentworth, of course, has gone to an independent. Uh, 
there could be other seats uh, in a in a similar position where uh, these are seats that were current that were once held by uh, the Liberals fairly safely, uh, but now risk either going to Labor or maybe a more conservative uh, uh, independent. So it is quite amazing that uh, these are the sorts of things that are happening now and. Uh, Privately, if you speak to some people even within uh, Labor ranks, they're confident of picking up at least uh, five or six seats uh, federally in the Victorian uh, in Victoria. So it's quite interesting that even Labor now sees that uh, Victoria is really uh, in play, as well as Western Australia and, pop- and probably uh, uh, parts of uh, Queensland. And that'll be enough to sweep uh, Labor into power with about a 20 seat majority or so. It is amazing. Well, have a good time in Buenos Aires there, Michael. No problem. Thanks for that, Alan. Well, there's a lot of action on the markets overnight, so let's just check in with Chris Weston, Head of Research at Pepperstone, to find out what's going on. Big session on Wall Street last night. Explain what happened. Well, I think, personally, I I think, if you look at the equity market, the S&P um, had the biggest move since March. And I think the, if, we, if we have a look at why, personally, it's, uh, if we have a look at other intermarket analysis, then the first thing I say is that high yield credit spreads came in 18 basis points relative to investment grade, and they came in you know, just as much relative to risk-free rates. The equity market always likes that situation, and that, that comes at the back of despite lower oil prices overnight. So there had been a concern about what was happening in the credit markets, and last night we saw big risk-taking coming through there. The other thing which we saw was inflation-adjusted or real yield in the Treasury market uh, came off a few basis points. Equity market's always going to like that situation. And then we're going to be seeing a situation where the market has continued to price out future rate hikes playing forward. And I think that leads us to the what actually caused those moves. The equity market loves that trifecta of factors playing through. The cost of money effectively is falling. Equities like that situation. Liquidity obviously is still an issue, but the market likes the cost of money falling. Jerome Powell coming out and speaking, um, I think, first of all, has been misinterpreted by the market. Um, Either way, it doesn't matter. The market is interpreted whichever way they want to see it. Um, And we have seen rate hikes in 2019 being priced out. But we have a coordinated Fed. There is no doubt that we have, uh, you know, know, people like Richard Clarida, the vice chair, Jerome Powell, um, very much on the same page with what's happening now. Um, Mr. Bostick, you can talk about uh, uh, Jamie Bullard as well. Um, the, the, the Fed are very much on a coordinated path here. It feels calculated. A lot of it is to undo the, the, the bad work or the misinterpretation from the market of what happened on the 3rd of October uh, when Jerome, said, Jerome Powell said that they were a long way from neutral. Um, and so what we've seen is some rhetoric from, from Jerome Powell, which is suggestive that the Fed are very much data dependent, and we may as well see a pause in, in rate hikes going forward. And, and that's at least how the market's interpreted that. So markets obviously like that, that, that coordinated response, that somewhat more dovish shift, that more nuanced shift from the Federal Reserve there. Seems to me the market's pretty right. I mean, he did say that they're a long way from neutral. And then last night he did say that they're just below neutral, or at least that was just below a broad range of estimates for neutral. Yeah, so so it, it, I mean, that does seem to me to be a deliberately significant change. Well, I think, first of all, I think you, you make a, a, an important distinction. And the first one is, is the market has said, has actually taken this as a uh, uh, that the we're you know we're, we're just below the the neutral rate. Now that that would imply that we're you know we've got, probably got the December hike in it, and then we're not going to see any more rate hikes. Um, 
but as you rightly point out, the the issue has been is that the the, the actual statement is that we're the we're below the broad range of estimates. Now, the range of estimates, if you have a look at the dot plot projection, anywhere between two and a half to three and a half percent, the weight of of the estimates is anywhere between two point seven to to three percent. But if we use the median number there, three percent, it suggests that even after December, you know, we've got a couple of hikes left in in, in the market, and then that will be driven by data. Um, so if the data continues on a weakening path and you know I point at housing I point at autos and I point at capex intentions they've been you know coming off reasonably sharply recently and if they continue in this trajectory then then the fed aren't going to raise rates anymore um that said um you know Jerome Powell has made it pretty clear that he is looking at other factors as well and it's not all on doom and gloom i mean the output gap in in the us is still as 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 wide as anywhere in the world if not the, the the single biggest point in the developed market and a lot of what he's been seeing is the fact that next year on his projections the unemployment is going to be at three and a half percent that's a 400 basis point what they consider to be full employment they believe the phillips curve is real and therefore uh with such a strong labor market and growth still very nicely above trend they do need to close that output gap so that would mean more for further rate hikes and 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 for me the the biggest thing to to, to cause volatility next year is if we do see further hikes and we do start seeing the unemployment rate in the US start ticking higher, um, that's when you're going to get genuine market volatility. You're going to see a bear market coming through because if you think about the unemployment rate in the US, at the moment it's 3.7%. They think it's going to go down to 3.5%, but their long-run projections for unemployment is 4.5%. So they still believe that they may have to, at some stage, look to create mechanisms to, to, to cause unemployment to move higher. Now, that sounds counterintuitive to anything that you would want to see in reality, but you know the output gap, the way it is at the moment, they need to call that, and, and they'd use the unemployment rate to do that. So I just don't think the market would like that in any shape or form. So the point being here is that there's some, some negatives, but there's also things that the, the Fed are looking at which are, are still require tightening of financial conditions, and that means closing the output gap. So, you know, I think 2019 is one that, you know, we could see a policy mistake from the Federal Reserve. And I think what we saw last night was just showing just how sensitive people are to uh, changes in policy, changes in rhetoric. It sounds like you don't believe that it's basically two more and then done for the Fed because of the output gap and the need to, you reckon, increase unemployment, that it's going to be, uh, they're going to continue to increase interest rates next year. The market will be caught flat-footed. Well, I think think the recipe is there for a policy mistake. Obviously, we hope um, as investors that that won't happen. uh, and my, my gut feel is, is looking at all the sort of daily charts that I look at with, with things like CapEx intentions through the things like the Dallas and Chicago, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the Fed um, numbers that we saw during the week and things like durable good orders, capital intentions, um, you know, housing that's been coming off quite sharply, autos globally, which has been pretty poor. Um, that, yeah, I think they probably should raise in December and then um, maybe once again next year, but maybe they should hold off it completely. But, but what I think is going to happen and what the Fed are looking at is, is, is often two different things. Economists always get caught up in, in what they believe is going to happen rather than what the, the actual central banks are thinking. And, um, you know, as I say, they're, they're, they're going to be – Jerome Powell still very cognizant of, of, of such tight labor markets, the skill shortages we're seeing there, um, and, and the impact that that's going to have on inflation. Remember that, that, you know, this week we get a core PCE number in the U.S. that's likely – um, to be, or tonight we're going to get a core PCE number, which is going to show them just around their their target of 1.9%. Um, 
So, you know, there is there is scope that, that they can raise further down the line. And I think that's when we start thinking that there could be a policy mistake. So I personally believe that they should hike in December and then lay off. Um, but what I think Jerome Powell's looking at is, is a very different situation. Um, and therefore, there, you know, there is a recipe for next year for a, a, a policy mistake. Just leaving the US for a moment, the UK seems to be heading to heading for a climax to the Brexit deals. What, uh, where do you think that's sitting now, Chris? Well, I mean, it's, it's consensus that we're not going to we're going to see this voted down. It's not going to make its its way through Parliament. The question then, Alan, is is really what happens next? I mean, I think the, the financial markets have a key role in 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 giving Theresa May leverage. Um, it is shaping up that the one of two paths. Either we're going to see a rework deal, um, but I think the Europeans have got absolutely no appetite for this. And and to be honest, why should they? Um, the UK is small fry for these guys. Um, but you know, I think which one the the deal shouldn't cause too much of a move in the pound, because it's uh, or the vote shouldn't cause too much of a pound because it's all let, let, largely priced in. But it's what happens next that could cause the um, cause the move. And there is you know real downside potential for the, for the UK um, from from this vote. And I think the financial markets will have a, a big role to play. The, the the greater the volatility, the more leverage Theresa May will have in trying to garner um, you know scope for for votes from the Labour Party and and also from her hard Brexiteers within her party as well. So I think you know if you look at uh, options pricing, they're expecting a big move in the pound. And the bigger the move, I think, the more chance she's got of, of getting this through. Um, at the end of the day, I, I just don't think the Europeans are going uh, to give her a, a reworked deal. So I think this is, as a political event goes, um, this is about as interesting as, as, as we've seen. And I think the next next few weeks are going to be, um, you know, a, bi- a big move and a big, a big role that the markets are going to have to play in, in how Theresa May goes about doing things. Well, in fact, the Bank of England came out this week and said that if it's a no-deal Brexit, UK is heading for a very deep recession. Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Mark Carney's got absolutely no credibility when it comes to uh, yeah market calls. He's been told to stay out of politics a number of times. And but at the end of the day, let's let's think about this rationally, Alan. I mean, if if we do see the pound getting absolutely clobbered on the back of this, uh, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if it does, you know, that's going to be inflationary. Um, if you think that the UK um, imports over half percent of its goods from the EU, and there's going to be WTO tariffs being put on that, that's going to be inflationary. Both of them are the wrong type of inflation that we want. It's not wage inflation, it's, it's you know, this, this, this imported inflation. And that's going to have to be met with a Bank of England response. If you're going to get, you know, currency and, and tariff inflation, the Bank of England are going to have to raise rates to counter that. And of course, that's when you start talking about house market declines. So, you know, I think, it's kind of watch this space at the moment, but I just don't think that market volatility is going to worry the Europeans. It's, it's, it's definitely going to worry, um, the, you know, the, 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 um, the UK side of the contingent, and it's going to worry Mark Carney. And I think, you know, he's, he's shown before just how much he hates Brexit, um, and he's coming out with these outlandish statements here. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks, Alan. Cheers. Now for an update on the economy, let's turn to Professor Warren Hogan, who used to be the head of research at ANZ Bank, uh, chief economist there, and now he's at UTS in Sydney. Well, Warren, uh, national accounts next week. What are you expecting to see? Look, uh, I think the, the 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 numbers are going to be important, um, if for no other reason that we now know they're going to form the baseline um, for the government's budget reckoning uh, in the mid-year update we now know will be released just before Christmas. And of course, that's going to sort of lay the foundation for this government's sort of final fling at um, uh, 
uh, at its, its economics policy and so forth ahead of the election. Um, and look, we expect to see more of the same. I mean, there's, there's obviously some of the nuances of the quarterly data, but the, the economy is, is essentially still expanding at, um, at a very healthy clip. And uh, I think this will um, be a little slower than what we've, we've seen recently, but it'll, it'll highlight the point that the economy is still in, firmly in expansion mode. The GDP numbers aren't likely to highlight the risks that are starting to form around the household sector in any meaningful way. I mean, we'll, we'll obviously be looking deeply, close, deeply into the sort of consumption numbers and the saving numbers and that sort of thing. But, um, but I think they'll highlight an economy that's still going pretty well. So how risky do you think the risks around the household sector are looking? It's, it's, it's fascinating, really, um, and we're not going to know until the new year, but something like half the dollar spend coming out of Australian households is about to occur or is occurring now well in the lead up to Christmas and in the next the few weeks following. And if this big fall in house prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, is, is going to have an impact, you'd think it's going to impact now. Um, so I think it, it, it's it's going to be a really revealing uh, what this this holiday spending season is like, and it's going to be really revealing in terms of uh, how much of an impact house prices have had. Um, the, the big story is essentially: is there a wealth effect from falling house prices? And to add to that, of course, falling equity prices. Um, and those who argue that it's powerful should expect to see a very weak Christmas retail period. Those who argue that no, it's a long-term asset housing, even equities are largely around retirement savings goals, um, and it's income that matters, and we're seeing some gradual push-up in wages, unemployment's low. So this debate, I think, you know, we're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of insight into how, how it's going to play out in 2019, um, early in the year, and through the anecdotes we receive over the next few weeks. Which side of that debate are you on? Look, I'm on I'm on the side that income matters. Um, that people are, are rational and they they look through this. The thing that worries me about the housing market is whether it triggers um, a, a more more of a financial event, and uh, there is real risk of that. And we're seeing that with the the, the, the tightening of bank um, uh, credit, and essentially it's just lower availability of credit. And if that then starts to sort of get a life of its own on the downside. Um, and so it's not so much the consumption story right now I'm worried about. I actually think we'll have an okay Christmas spending season. Um, but I'm worried that when we take the break for summer from the housing market, when we return in March, February, March, that it renews its downward momentum because two things, one is it shows that there is, there is some, some, uh, some financial tightness and some financial mechanisms that have been triggered here. Um, and, and the other thing, of course, is that any further falls in Sydney and Melbourne house prices are taking us into crash territory. Um, we're already down, I think, almost 10% from the peak. And if we start to go towards 15% within a sort of a two-year time frame, then, I mean, I think that's we're starting to get to the definition of a housing crash, which, yeah, which crash. I think that will right. then, yeah, that, that, that will then, I think, have an impact on. Um, on sentiment, spending, and those things. I think at the moment we're getting through it quite well. It's a correction. Um, people are looking through it. Um, the, the, the stresses at the margins. But if it continues on in the uh, in the in the autumn of next year, then I think we're, we've got some concerns. And and that's when you start going from thinking about rate hikes from the RBA to rate cuts. It's when you think about government intervention, that sort of thing. It's interesting. I've been I've been thinking back to what happened in the late 80s, early 90s. 
obviously there was a housing crash, uh, which eventually led to a recession. But but the interest rate environment was entirely different. I think the the cash rate got up to 17%, or you know, the or the mortgage rate did. I can't remember which of those did, but you yeah, might know. Cash rate got me, up. But yeah, they both got up to that level. And we and we saw massive rate cuts. We saw rate cuts of an, a magnitude that just is unprecedented in history. You know, we saw short-term interest rates fall from, you know, as you said, near twenty to below ten in a, in a number of years. But, I, but I'm, looking at, 90s, I'm looking at actual. But we're looking at actual house price changes at the time. They weren't that great. I mean, what actually brought the recession on was, it seemed to me, commercial problems, uh, collapses, collapses of um, of companies, of uh, building societies, and so on. Yeah, that was a that was that was that, yeah. Well, that was a commercial property crash, which led to a banking crisis and a seizure of credit, and that obviously had some ramifications for 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 lending into the mortgage market. But actually, it was the the ability to cut rates, reduce funding costs for households, and boost housing that got us out of that recession. Um, so it's a very different story now. The the, the corporate sector is in, in largely good shape. And the trigger here is, is 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 directly related to the mortgage market, and 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 it's unprecedented. I mean, we we haven't seen this in this country before. Haven't seen what? I haven't seen the household sector and residential property lead lead the way in terms of being the asset that's 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 falling in value, and the credit into that market um, being the source of tightening of credit. Right. Um, it was it was commercial property and, and business distress that led the the way in the, in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, fascinating. Well, great to talk, Warren. Thanks a lot. Okay, Alan. And now to bring us up to date with what's going on in technology, and this week cryptocurrencies and online commerce. Here's Steve Samatino. Well, Steve, uh, the Bitcoin price and cryptocurrencies generally have had another big drop in the last couple of months. Um, but uh, I note that uh, you say that uh, Ohio has just become the first West state in the Western world to accept Bitcoin for tax payments. So, so is Bitcoin on the way out or on the way in? Well, I think that Bitcoin is, is probably going to stay where it is and, and not do much. But the move from Ohio to accept Bitcoin for tax payments, I think it's more of a reflection of what's happening with the underlying technology known as the blockchain. And the treasurer there in Ohio uh, has mentioned that the reason that they want to accept Bitcoin for tax payments, and at this stage, it's just uh, for businesses to pay their business taxes uh, in Bitcoin, is to attract blockchain-based businesses to set up in their state. And in some ways, this is a little bit like a quasi-New Age Delaware North Corporation, where there's a lot of investments happening in blockchain. And in fact, just this year, $3.9 billion has gone into blockchain investments, which is, during the dive of a cryptocurrency, a 300% rise on last year. Uh, Bitcoin, as we know, it peaked at just under $20,000 in December 19 last year and is now hovering around about the $4,000 mark, which is a 90% decline. But I think that this move is kind of part of the re-legitimization of cryptocurrency, ironically, because it's dropped so much. I, I don't understand that. What do you mean, because it's dropped so much? Yeah. So if, if we look at the history of technological revolutions, what we generally have is an inordinate rise in speculation around that technology. During the mid-90s to 1999, we had a massive 
uh, increase in the dot-com businesses, wild speculation around that where people were just throwing money at things in a crazy way just, just to make money out of being in the space just by being a dot-com. And in fact, the NASDAQ took nearly 15 years to get back to its value that it was in 1999. But what happens is typically when the technology or, or when the, the speculation uh, falls away and the numbers die, then all of that money has to get repurposed into creating some value for consumers. And so usually what you find through these technological revolutions is that you get wild speculation, it'll die, people will, the speculators will leave the room and lose their money and the true believers will start to build businesses around that. And I think that that's exactly what's happening with blockchain. People have realized that it's the blockchain that is the core technology that is going to be of value. And we've seen governments around the world investing heavily, banks and everyone, because we know that this is in some ways like an internet-based technology. It's a mesh technology we can, which can hold together a lot of other things. And so in that way, I think the price dropping on Bitcoin is legitimizing the technology underneath it, which is really, it's really about that removing that double spend problem rather than the currency itself. Really, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are just one use case for the idea, which is actually blockchain. And now that that money has gone out and that wild speculation has gone out, people are starting to look at the technology itself and try and solve real business problems with it. In fact, you seem to be suggesting that the collapse in the price of the uh, of the cryptocurrencies is and Bitcoin is a precondition for the thing for the whole thing becoming legitimate. Yeah, and and actually seems seems to be a little bit like a precondition. And, and most technological revolutions have done that. Uh, for the listeners, there's a, a lady called Carlotta Perez who's done some research in the states about this. And it typically isn't until you have a decline after after rapid speculation that you'll get uh, the right investment around that. And it, it does seem to be a precondition of any technology which um, has has a boom time because. Like anything, too much money goes in there. The price earnings ratios or the speculation can't be justified, and it and it is almost as if it has to fall down before we can actually um, get a real business behind that, because the money just doesn't work in that way when you have too much flowing in and and not enough return on investment. So it, it is in many ways like a precondition with new forms of technology. The other thing that's happened lately is the Black Friday sales. Now that seems to have become a sort of a annual marker for what's going on with online commerce. What did we learn yeah, really, last week? Yeah, it really is. You know, the one thing that we seem to learn, I think, is that online's a, a little bit different. The thing that uh, the numbers said was that it seems as though this is a planned purchase and it seems really different to what we see in physical retail. If we look at the top selling items, they were kids' toys, a, a number of variety of kids' toys, and technology products and purchases, which are, you know, in the realm of three, five hundred dollars, uh, you know, two thousand dollars. It was smartphones, it was laptops, it was tablets, and it seems as though these for are for planned purchases for high cost items and also Christmas preparation. Uh, one of the other interesting things that we noticed is that still sixty percent of the sales actually happened on a laptop and not on a smartphone. Now, smartphone usage and web surfing is around about eighty percent in most developed markets versus the laptop, but the sales are still going back down to the laptop, which I think for retailers and e-commerce people out there, it's an indication that the smartphone will never have the same amount of utility for detailed browsing where we need to see certain information and make those purchases so that desktop still has a, a lot of utility. So it was very interesting from that perspective. And in terms of the Christmas gifts, uh, it turns out that in most Western markets, Christmas buying online doubles the general buying online for, for general household purchases. 
So people are really looking at Christmas as a time to uh, to buy things online and reduce the Christmas rush, which is bad news for, for physical retailers because they want people in their stores. But I think people are saying it's something I can plan for. I know what the kids are looking for and it's something that we can buy conveniently and quickly and just have it delivered. And so I think the toy sales within Cyber Monday and Black Friday uh, reflected that. We also had really huge numbers. It was a 19.3% increase on last year in revenue time terms, not just volume terms. And this year, the sales reached just in four days, $7.79 billion. So that's huge. I mean, so it really is starting to take hold, isn't it? I suppose this Christmas we'll expect to see um, a drop in uh, store traffic. Yeah, I, I really worry about the retailers uh, around Australia, the world, with, with store traffic going down. I, I think that um, although we all enjoy Christmas, some, the shopping sometimes isn't as enjoyable. It seems like a mission that you need to get out there, and I can't help but think that more people are going to gravitate online. And also, since the logistics is getting so much better from a consumer perspective now, uh, you know, being able to get deliveries you know, guaranteed within a couple of days and knowing it's going to arrive on time, I think now that the logistics networks are so much stronger – People are, you know, they're prepared to rely on it a little bit more and and go online. Great to talk to you, Steve. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Alan. Cheers. The Beatles' George Harrison died on this day in 2001. So here's one of his nicest songs. Here's My Sweet Lord. That's all from me. Have a great week.